Welcome to episode 49 of the Her Story Speaks podcast. I'm your host, Andrea Miller. As we wrap up 2019, I wanted to share another story about immigration and the crisis at the border because it's one of the most talked about issues of the year and perhaps the biggest humanitarian crisis of our day. To join me in this conversation, my guest is Sarah Kazada. Sarah is a woman whose life and purpose was forever changed by the issue of immigration. And today, she's an advocate for immigration reform. For much of her life, Sarah knew very little about immigration issues and policy. She was born and raised in the United States, and like many of us, her life wasn't directly affected by immigration. But that all changed when she met a boy and fell in love. Listen as Sarah shares her story of becoming directly involved in the crisis through chapters of her life she would never have imagined. How God used the man she met to change not only her life story, but perhaps more importantly, her heart towards immigration, and what it means to truly love our neighbor and welcome the refugee. Well, Sarah, welcome to the Her Story Speaks podcast. I am just honored to have you as my guest today. Oh, thank you so much. It's a joy to be here. Well, I read your book and I just, it's so good on so many levels and Today, we're just going to dive into your story. You are an author. You are a writer, obviously. You are a social justice advocate, specifically for immigration reform. So tell me just some of the other things about you, the, where you live, your, your wife, your mom, those sort of things, and then we'll dive into your story. Sure, absolutely. So I live in Atlanta, Georgia with my husband, Billy, who is originally from Guatemala, and we have two kids. A daughter who is almost going to be nine, and we have a surprise party planned for her this month. She's super excited about, and we have a son who is sick. Fun ages at Christmas time, so exactly. So, okay, well, Sarah, let's go ahead. We have a lot to talk about today, so let's go ahead and dive into your story. And so often I start with people's childhood, and since we have so much to talk about today, let's just kind of briefly tell me where you were born and raised, but then how you ended up in LA, because that is kind of where your story takes off into really how God used that story for your purpose and mission. Absolutely. So I was born and raised in East Tennessee, and my dad was a pastor, and I grew up very much, very Southern, very Christian, and that was a big part of my story. Um, As it relates to immigration in particular, I feel like that season of my life, there was just a general disconnection from what was happening um, more broadly in the immigration story. So for me, it was a lot of um, eating grits, playing basketball, going to church, all those kinds of, of good memories from childhood. And really, but I see now looking back how God was laying these different um, sort of stepping stones in front of me mm-hmm. where there was an an invitation to connect to stories on the margin to become um, open to the idea of building relationships and making life among the poor. So when I was, um, after my freshman year of college, I went to a private Christian university and I decided to take a year off of school to um, do an urban ministry program. And so living among the urban poor in the U.S., And um, really, God used that experience to open my eyes to just different stories happening here in our own country and what what it what life looks like for people who are navigating very different challenges and have very different opportunities and expectations. And for me, that 
really led me then to LA, as you mentioned, which is where I actually moved to Los Angeles after I had finished graduate school and I had taken a position with a Christian university to invite people into neighborhoods in Los Angeles. So students would live with immigrant families and they were um, serving and volunteering in the city. But what, what was so interesting for me at that time was I knew almost nothing about immigration still. I had always which, been. <laughs> which I was glad to hear because I feel like now this last year, I'm just really starting to learn about it. I'm like, where have I been? Like, like, what have I been doing with my life? But when you, I heard you share in another podcast, like your interview you had to fill out and they ask you about immigration. So share a little bit about that just to show like how not they, informed you were and where God's taken you. It was absolutely, I look back on that now and I laugh because I was, you know, I was in my two bedroom apartment with my best friend from high school. And I'm like on this phone interview with this folks in Los Angeles. And they're saying, you know, you'll be working with a lot of immigrant families. Like what's kind of your background and understanding of immigration in our country. And I was like, you know, you're sort of scrambling, right? Cause right. you're interviewing for a job. And I'm like, oh, well, I, uh, you know, I don't really know what we're talking about. Like, I don't, I don't know what the like conversation is. Um, but I would say if it's like, you know, being welcoming versus like turning people away, like I would lean more welcoming, you yeah. know, but like following the law. Like I, it's yeah. a wonder I got that job. <laughs> Trying to give the most possible politically correct answer you could. At, <laughs> you at, could. at that time, at that time, no one was talking about immigration mm -hmm. like they are now. So I didn't even really have a reference point. You know, it wasn't in the news every day. Like it feels like right. it is right now. And so all I knew, and I think a lot of people feel this way. I want to be warm and welcoming and kind to, to people. I like right. people. <laughs> and at the same time, I wanted to respect the law. I want other people to respect the law. I think that's a general good philosophy. And that, right in a nutshell was my immigration philosophy. Oh, I like yeah. people and people should follow the law. The end. Right. And that's why I want to talk to you a little about that later, how as Christians we navigate that because there's some major tension there mm -hmm. right now with those two really butting heads. So we'll talk okay. about that a little bit, but it's interesting to note that that's kind of where you were in your life, but God had other plans. So you're in LA and then take us from there, how things started to slowly um, unravel and open your eyes to this issue. So I was in LA and I was um, working with families and I was also through my work at the university, I was being somewhat educated about some of the broader elements at play in our immigration system. And we would actually go and sit in an immigration court and some of these kinds of things. So I was getting kind of this introductory, even as I was helping co-lead students, I was also learning myself in the places we were walking. Um, but very soon after I moved to LA, I met a boy <laughs> and he was so cute and so funny and he was from Guatemala. Okay. And so, I mean, I initially just assumed like, oh, this probably isn't something that would be anything because it just seemed like at, at this point in my life, I'm trying to think I had never been outside of the country. I don't believe. Okay. Um, no, that's not true. I had, I had, been to Canada. Okay. <laughs> like, well, a little bit. Never spent the night outside of the country. Okay. So it was a, I didn't have a passport for sure. So this was before you even needed a passport. Gotcha. And, um, so I, 
you know, I was like meeting someone who was from another country. It just felt really distant for me. It felt, it was just something I didn't have any experience in. Um, but he asked me out and we started to get to know each other and we had so much in common and just connected in this really deep and personal way that I was like, Hmm, this is interesting, you know? Mm-hmm. And on our third date, he decided to insinuate to me that he was undocumented. Um, again, it speaks to how little I knew about what was happening that I really didn't even understand what he was saying. Like he was, he was trying to tell me honestly what, what his circumstance was, the situation with his paperwork. And I didn't even know what he meant exactly. And I thought to myself, again, we, this is only like our third date. So I'm like, I'm not sure I need to know this, you know, information about your social security number. (laughs) Like I don't usually lead with that. Right. Um, But I, you know, I thought to myself, well, if this relationship goes anywhere, I hope he gets that fixed. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, I say that because I literally believed that if you wanted to do things the right way, you could. And so, you know, it's like, he probably needs to take a half day off of work, um, go to an embassy, fill out some paperwork, maybe pay a fee. I don't, I don't know the process, but I hope whatever happens, he does that. Um, and, you know, I come from a family, like when I had moved to LA, you know, my dad's like, you have to update your driver's license within 30 days of them. <laughs> right. right. And I, I thought it was a similar process um, for people who wanted to immigrate. And for those that don't know, cause this was so enlightening for me reading your book about the visas, like people could be wondering, well, why was he undocumented? So do you mind just sharing like the realities of that? And he did come here on a visa, but why it wasn't renewed and how common that is for people to be here overstaying visas and why? Absolutely. So he had come legally to the U S with a tourist visa and, um, he, but with a tourist visa, there's a time limit. So he had, I believe like a 10 year visa, but you could only stay for six consecutive months at a time. And he, he didn't leave at the end of his six months. And, um, and basically you just have to go across the border for a day or something. Is that right? Yeah. So he, okay. theoretically he could have avoided some of our life story <laughs> if he would have taken a day and driven to t- across the border to Tijuana, Mexico, and then come back that that would have, because he had that 10 year visa could have renewed it. But, you know, he was a dude in his late twenties and he was working, he was working like 80 or 90 hour weeks for a construction company at that time. And, you know, it, it slipped off his radar. And I will say our family spent, um, five months in Guatemala earlier this year. And I almost accidentally had my son overstay his visa because I didn't realize that when we came in, they had stamped a time limit. Um, Cause I, I just, I didn't look and I didn't know. And I knew we'd only be here five months. And so I wasn't thinking like, Oh, I'm immigrating. And it, somebody finally mentioned to me like, you know, you can only, you have to do this and that. And so we had to, to go. Okay. You almost had another book right there, right? (laughs) Well, Um, and I think that's really important with your husband, because again, we have this narrative, well, he could have just gone over and come back, but there's so much involved as far as taking a day off work, having the money. It's not like these are financially, you know, wealthy that they just have this time and money to go do that every six months. So I was, I would add to that at, at that time in his life, he wasn't he wasn't planning on staying here. So he yeah, wasn't, he wasn't in that mindset of, 
I am immigrating. It was, I'm going to come, I'm going to make some money. Um, I'm going to go back home, you know? So I think all of that plays into it. And, and it's a lot of people's story. One, I was recently in um, Oaxaca, Mexico, speaking with a government agency that does education on immigration for, to try to help people recognize the choices they're making when they migrate. And they said, everyone who leaves assumes they're coming back. Mm, Uh, And I I thought that was really, really fascinating because it also speaks to this decision-making process that people are going through. Um, It's not necessarily, I am immigrating to the U.S. It's, this is what I need to do right now. Yeah, that is very interesting. And the other thing with the visas that you say that I didn't realize that you talk about in the book, that visa overstays, they far exceed the number of illegal immigrants who cross the border. So that to me was really fascinating. Actually, I researched the book because I thought like, oh, Billy's experience is a little bit of an anomaly. Uh But when I started really doing the research, since 2008, every year, visa overstays outnumber illegal border crossings. And so- When we talk about new undocumented immigrants, about 60% of them each year are people who arrived legally. And so when we think about vetting and some of those things, like they've been through those processes, Mm -hmm. but you cannot here in the US, like what we did in Guatemala was we went to an office and said, hey, our visa is about to expire. We're gonna stay a little longer. And they said, okay, that'll be $50 each. And then they stamped it again. You can't do that. You can't um, extend your visa within, within the US. And so- Interesting. Okay. And so then I also read, so did I read this right? Canadians lead the world in the unauthorized overstays. Is that accurate? At the time of that writing, it was definitely accurate. Um, That blew my mind too. Yeah. It is. And it's, I mean, it's important to acknowledge, and I think it's like less than 1% of people overstay Mm -hmm. their visas. So while we're talking about, um, a large undocumented population, it also is important to recognize that the vast majority of people are coming on a legal visa and leaving before the end of their time. And so when we're making sweeping changes to our immigration systems, a lot of times we're doing that based on a small percentage of situations where it's not working. Right. And I, all this is just so crucial, I think, for us to learn, because if we're going off the news and sound bites we have a totally different picture of what's going on. So that's why I so encourage people to read your book, to hear your story, but also like the facts that you intertwine with it. So for Billy, he didn't do that. So he told you he's undocumented. So with not doing that, he just didn't even get a second chance. Like if he leaves, he's done. Is that right? It's not like, oh, you have a second chance to go renew your visa. Basically, if he left, he's done. Exactly. So I thought at that time, like I thought, oh, you go somewhere and say, whoops, I overstayed my visa. Uh How do I fix this? Um, But as I began to learn the longer we dated um, through one of the most awkward relationship defining (laughs) conversations a couple can have, um, I, you know, he, again, he was like dropping these very indirect hints. And finally I'm like, what is happening? And he finally looks at me and he says, the only way I can fix my papers is to marry a U.S. citizen. Mm. And then he broke up with me. And I'm sitting oh, there like, what is happening right now? <laughs> yes. <laughs> because he was so, it was such a vulnerable thing to share. Mm-hmm. And it was such a vulnerable position to be in to say, we have been dating only a little while. And I have this great need that only you can help me with. And I don't want to be in that position. So I'd rather break up. Mm-hmm. than make you feel like there's something shady going on here. 
And so I was like, well, I haven't been thinking something shady is going on here because I didn't know anything about our U.S. immigration system. So I I had no idea. Um, So, no, I haven't been secretly thinking that that's why you were dating me. Um, And so we were able to have some honest conversations about that. It was very scary for me, um, not exactly knowing what I was getting into and what the ramifications and implications could be for me long term. Sure. Um, I mean, long term. I can't even imagine that. So you speak some sense into him, though, about, hey, we're not going to split up here. Like, I'm in this. Love you. So what is going through your mind? Like, I think we do need to get married, or are you still really hesitant to proceed? What do you do there? You know, I think I naively was like, surely that's not true. There's got to be something we're missing here. And I was like, maybe you should see a lawyer. It's like, you know, and he had actually been pursuing some of that on his own again, um, looking back on it now, I see that because he wasn't really planning to stay, he hadn't been really considering how to address that. But once he started to feel more serious toward me, he had been trying to do some research on his own, but it's such a, um, it's such a challenging sector filled with scam artists and (laughs) all things because, because people are in such vulnerable positions. So if they go to a lawyer and say, I need help with this, that's um, people can really take advantage of that. So um, I, I think to be honest, at that point, I was like, hmm, this, I have no idea how this is going to work out, but I guess uh-huh. I'll just keep on going. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I really did have very strong feelings for him, which was something that I hadn't experienced before. And so I was trying to listen to God and just put one foot in front of the other. Um, and so with that, I'm sure you're naively also thinking like, okay, I guess like once you decided, okay, we are going to get married, did you think, well, it will be easy? I know you had the visit with the lawyer that that wasn't necessarily the case. So maybe yeah. walk us through that where you decide we are getting married, but this isn't just a cut and dry thing. Absolutely. So I have heard, and I had somebody say this to me this week. So it's, I, you know, I think people still assume that if you marry a U.S. citizen, I, I think her words were you're good to go or mm-hmm. <laughs> something like that. Mm-hmm. And, and it's unfortunately is it's not that simple. Um, and so when we met with our lawyer right after we'd gotten engaged, because I did want to know like, okay, well now, now this is really happening. So yeah. and we were, we were only engaged for 10 weeks. So we had okay. a lot, a lot okay. to do. Um, we met with a lawyer and as, when he looked at our paperwork, he said, you know, it's clear you have a legal visa and you entered the country legally. And he's like, but when you entered, they gave you a small piece of paper. Mm-hmm. Do you still have that? <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> and he's like, no, I, I didn't save any paperwork. And you know, yeah. I, I'm like slapping my forehead. Like, what is, what are you doing? Well, don't you have a file folder for yes. this important document? And uh, so they said, so the lawyer told us that, well, what it, what your pa- your paperwork says is that you entered the country legally and then snuck out of the country and then snuck back in or no, excuse me, that you entered legally, exited legally. And then even though you had a visa, chose to cross the border. That's what his paperwork says. Right. Because he didn't have that one little piece of paper that showed that that he would have gotten. Right. And you go into details with that in the book that Mm -hmm. he was missing that. So that really complicated things. It did. And so our lawyer said, but, you know, we can still go through the process. But now, rather than a couple of months and some fees, you will need to move to Guatemala, Mm -hmm. both of you together, 
He's like anywhere from three months to 10 years. Oh. Like, oh, you know, when oh. you're 26, 10 years yes. feels like a really long time. Yes. And, uh, and then he said, you know, and then you should be able to apply from there and everything should work out. And I was like, should okay (laughs) that's if we do 10 years it should okay yeah that's hard unknowns in Mm -hmm. that one meeting you know Mm -hmm. um and so we walked out of there just kind of baffled and therefore went to an amusement park because i guess that's like my coping mechanism roller coasters and so we were like wow this is really different and and you know it's interesting that that happened because i think it did really challenge me personally again i kind of mentioned that i had been growing in this area of solidarity with vulnerable people with marginalized communities and this was this first time that i really saw my experience is it's intimately tied to this other person's experience yeah. who is an undocumented immigrant and so am i going to say Ooh, it's getting a little too hot in this kitchen. I'm out. Or am I going to say I'm committed to you and I'm committed to our relationship and whatever that brings? Um, which is a really hard question to answer when you're like, who knows what it'll bring? Possibly right. two months and toward 10 years and hopefully it'll Right, because things started getting gradually uncomfortable to like really uncomfortable. This could be like <laughs> life-changing for you and how committed are you and how committed are you to love and the gospel and to love like Jesus. And it's just, that's such a cool part of your story though, how that just started to change your focus and priorities and selfishness. Um, with the marriage thing, I have to bring up though, because I had no idea, I was fascinated. I was reading this chapter to my husband and daughter last night <laughs> about the expatriation act of if you guys had gotten married before 1940 like that blew my mind oh, so yes. can you just briefly share that we, don't, we won't go into all the history but I had no idea and that I want you to share that because I think that again proves like you also talk about the laws they are for people in power and this is just the most fascinating example so talk just share briefly about that yeah absolutely so Previous to women being allowed to vote, there was a law in place that if that for myself as a U.S. citizen choosing to marry a man who was a foreigner, I would have to give up my U.S. citizenship to marry him. Mm-hmm. Now, that was not the case when a U.S. citizen man <laughs> married a foreign woman. Um, and so there was this really interesting historical, and again, I didn't know about this, so I was doing that research. Um, and okay, it makes it. me feel better, because I'm like, did I miss this chapter in history? This is incredible. Okay. <laughs> it's incredible, and, then, and what's so fascinating to me is when women got the right to vote, that was one of the first, they, yeah. they, they immediately tackled that situation. Yes. Um, and I think, again, kind of as you alluded to, when we're talking about um, legality versus Ill- illegality, the reality is our laws change and people who have power are making laws. And often, often they're making those laws in their own favor. So a group of men is making laws that says, well, if we want to marry someone who's from another country, we don't have to give up our citizenship. But if my sister does, then I want to, she's going to have to. So, um, you know, and so we see that play out. And so the, the laws that we um, have as a country while I still believe in respecting the law and working within the law, I also have learned to recognize that laws are not, um, they're not holy or they're not immutable on their own. <laughs> like they yeah. can't be changed. And oftentimes 
for for the purposes of justice and equality, they need to be changed. Yes, and you are very intentional with what you share in the book and you're speaking because our immigration system is very outdated and flawed right now and there's major changes needed. And that's a historic example, but I think the, in, in the future we'll be reading about now and like be surprised about how some of these laws are and what needs to be changed. So yeah, thank you for sharing that part of it. So going back to the story, you leave with the leave from the lawyer, not knowing what's ahead, but you guys do proceed to get married. But one sad part that again shows the laws that, that are so just not fair is about Billy's parents not being able to come to the wedding. So share a little bit about that. Yeah. So it was, um, again, kind of, you've heard a little of my backstory and where I was coming from. And so I, I genuinely had a belief that if someone who is upstanding and, you know, Mm -hmm. not a criminal and these kinds of things wants to come to the U S and goes about it the legal and correct way, that there's no problem with that. Um, once we set our wedding date, my mother-in-law and father-in-law applied multiple times to get visas to come to our wedding and, um, and were denied every time. And so they were not able to come to our wedding. And it was a real, that's a real heartache from that particular season of, you know, there was no explanation and, and there was, you know, you, they're walking out of the U S embassy with kind of this encouragement to, you know, try again. Mm, (laughs) You're thinking like, well, wait, like what's going to change between now and me trying again? Like there's, we, there's not necessarily clear criteria and the criteria that is laid out, they did meet. Um, but there was no explanation given for their denial, except an encouragement to try to try again. Um, and spend more money, right. which of course comes with fees yeah. and all of that. Absolutely. Um, and so they did try again. And, um, when they were denied, I think, I think they just went through it twice, um, and decide, you know, again, we were only engaged. And denied, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so but denied for no, for no reason, for a short visa. Mm-hmm. And that's trying to do it the right way, which again, the narrative of so many believing, well, just do it legally, or mm-hmm. why would you do, why would you be undocumented? Like, that is not the easy, that's not easy and sometimes even possible. So with that, share just a little bit, because you go into it in the book, but the three main ways to enter, speaking of undocumented, legal, not, um, are the blood, sweat, and tears. Because mm-hmm. I, I think that just gives a real concise, oh, just overview of how people really can enter legally, but also how hard that is mm-hmm. and sometimes impossible if you don't fit in that small box. So do you mind just talking about those three areas real quick? Absolutely. So I, I feel like blood, sweat, tears is a really easy way to kind of remember the three primary mm-hmm. pathways um, for legal immigration. So blood refers to relatives. Um, and this is related to if you have a child, a spouse, or a parent who is a, a green card holder, which is also called a legal permanent resident, or a U.S. citizen. So sometimes we hear phrases like chain migration that suggests you can apply for your cousins and your aunts, and, and that's not true. Mm-hmm. Um, it is for um, parents, children, and spouses and siblings sorry that's the last one and the siblings is a much much longer wait time because it is kind of not considered as primary of a relationship okay so people can apply that way for a family member so that requ- that means if you want to come and immigrate legally you have to have someone in your immediate family who is a US citizen or a legal permanent resident okay and so sweat is when someone 
is sponsored by an employer in the U.S. And so usually that means the employer has to prove that they have a specialized skill set that they can't find in the U.S. or some other reason why they would need to be hiring abroad and, uh, and sponsoring this person for this position. And then the last category is tiers, which <clears throat> I barely cover in the book, but has become the biggest part of the news in the most recent years. Mm -hmm. um, because this is under this tiers category is where we would have our asylum seeking families as well as refugees. And real quickly, I'll just say the difference between refugees and asylum seekers, refugees apply for refugee status from their home country. Mm -hmm. and they are as assigned to a country where they will be resettled. So they don't choose the U.S. They, they've just gone into a process and are assigned to different receiving countries for refugees. Asylum seekers have to be on U.S. soil to apply for asylum, and then that is when they begin. Um, and the refugee process is about a two-year vetting, I believe, and then um, – the asylum process also has its own vetting where they're interviewing you on what's called a credible fear interview to prove that you have some sort of um, credible fear based on religion, um, a political affiliation, gender. It's these, very, it's these very clear kinds of categories for what type of persecution is considered valid for an asylum claim. And they have to get themselves here and tell that story right then. I mean, it's like you said, it's, they have to get to the U S soil to be able to even present their case with that. Yes. You cannot apply from outside of the country for asylum. And then is that, what kind of a process is that? Is that a long process? Is that like decided right there? Tell us a little bit about that because we're, I mean, we're turning away a lot of asylum seekers. So it's, it's really changed right now. Okay. Um, and and it's also muddied the waters of mm -hmm. this question of legality versus illegality because it is 100% legal to walk up to a port of entry at the US and say, I am here to claim asylum. And then the US is legally bound to process them through our asylum process. Okay. However, we've seen a, a surge of asylum seekers at the border over the last year or two, and this has caused the U.S. to start to put in some policies to try to avoid having to process asylum seekers. And so um, some of that looks like what they call metering at the ports of entry. So a port of entry is like, um, it's, it's a legal entry point into the U.S. at the border. Okay. So okay. you're gonna go through a, you're gonna go through immigrations and customs, whether over a bridge or through a car, that kind of thing, airports. But for these purposes, we're primarily talking about non-airport ones that are at the border but so they they instituted a policy called metering which essentially said they were going to limit how many people they would see a day and we heard okay. reports from 150 people to even like 15 and so as people began to approach the border um, border officials started turning folks away before they could get to u.s soil because still mm -hmm. once they get on u.s soil they're legally allowed but if you can keep them from getting on u.s soil then you can start that stop that process before it starts and so they began metering at the southern border and not allowing people to claim asylum when they would arrive and so folks were waiting and you know that wait was taking you know could take several weeks or several months we actually went in tijuana to a a shelter and it was all women and children 
you know, it was so surreal to be in a migrant shelter that was filled with pack and plays and high chairs and all this kind of stuff and toys because it was almost all women and children. And speaking with the director of that, of that center, he was saying, you know, we've been a migrant shelter here for years and years, but just three years ago, we opened this facility for women and children because women were coming to our male facilities and asking if they could stay. And we wanted to create a safe place for them because a lot of the way we address immigration is based on decades of single men migrating predominantly from Mexico. And so this, this shift in the last few years that is heavily women and children and family units coming from Central America has really shed light on some of the the limitations of the way we have approached the border. Right. And that's what you, I've heard you talk about that before, which is fascinating and something we really have to look closely at because the demographics have changed just so much and we can't, we can't approach this how we always have. It is. And so, and what happened when we saw those rising numbers and those demographic shifts, the decision was essentially we are approaching a humanitarian crisis with a national security response. Yes. And so you see that in conflict and you see it so clearly when you're at the border. I actually went into a border patrol processing center in, in South Texas. So was that the trip you did this fall? I was going to ask you about that. Is that... Um, it actually wasn't this fall, but I okay. was also in Texas this fall. Okay, <laughs> you, you're there a lot. So, yeah, I wanted to know, like, ask you about that trip and what you saw or this one you're referring to with, with seeing what's going on. Yeah, so it was, it was fascinating because um, typically whenever I am at the border, we, we speak with migrants, but we also speak with Border Patrol mm-hmm. because there are a lot of different people who are impacted by what's happening there now. And so we met with Border Patrol and they, you know, it was fascinating because the, the reality is that illegal border crossings have been falling for years. Huh. Um, yeah. And so Border Patrol is really proud of that fact, <laughs> and mm-hmm. so, as they should be. There's so much that they have done to curb illegal immigration and to create safer places along the border. Um, okay. you know, we, we were in McAllen, Texas, which is a border town, and they're saying, this is a super safe city to live in. I, I was in El Paso just this fall, and it's like one of the top 10 safest cities in the country. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so you know, there has been work done along the border to, to mitigate that, the violence that has, that has historically been there in the past. But so we were meeting with Border Patrol in South Texas, and they said they were sharing their successes, the way the numbers have fallen, the fact that we're seeing some historic lows in illegal crossings. And then they also shared you know, that they do catch drug traffickers and gang members who are crossing the border sometimes. Actually, the majority of drugs are found through legal ports of entry, and so it's okay. less about illegal crossings and more about the drug trafficking in that area. But then they proceeded to walk us back to the processing part of, of where they have a warehouse where they was like holding folks. And when we walked into that warehouse, it was the, the, the cages that you've mm-hmm. seen on the news. And so uh, we're seeing, we've heard all of this talk about gang violence and cartels and drug trafficking. And then we walk back to the back and it is four quadrants of caging one filled with 
men and children, one filled with women and children, and then one of unaccompanied boys and one of unaccompanied girls. Mm. And it just, it's just, there's a disconnect in, in what Border Patrol is designed to do and what they're effectively having to do at the moment. And it was, it was really difficult to see. They don't allow toys or anything in that space. So Mm. I, you know, I'm watching a two-year-old just move water bottles back and forth like two-year-olds do. And there was something so you know, my mama heart, there was something oh, so yeah. familiar and pure about that just little toddler trying to kind of entertain herself. And, and they're being detained until they can be processed or figure out what's going on with them. And, and there's still women and children being detained, right? I mean, I think yeah. it's when it's out of the news for a little bit, we think, oh, it must be resolved. But this is still going on and being detained. Yes. Yeah, so that facility, people are not there very long. Okay. They're okay. going, they're kind of starting that process. Okay. Um, but there is, there's been huge movement of recently to detain more asylum seeking families. It's, and what that has done is create a, sur- you know, limited the resources. So traditionally, if someone comes and seeks asylum, they are processed, given a court date, and then released to family members, sometimes with okay. like an ankle monitor. Okay. And, Asylum seekers have a really high rate of showing up in court because they are doing things a legal way. They want to have legal status in the U.S. and they're walking through that process. And so what's happening currently at the border, another policy besides the metering that's been instituted is called remain in Mexico. And so what, what they're doing now is once someone is allowed to claim asylum, they say, okay, here's your court date. It's three months out. You must wait for this court date in Mexico. Mm. So they're not, they may not have family in Mexico. Usually if folks are coming to claim asylum, they often have family members in the U S and that's just because of historic labor needs and migration patterns. And so people, so what's happened in Mexico is you've seen tent cities springing up along the border of people who are waiting for U S court dates, which has also (sighs) reduced the rate of people showing up for those because sometimes folks to get back over them. They don't yeah. know what happened to them. Um, there's a, there is a, a challenge with violence and kidnapping and things in those camps as well. And so what's been interesting in our kind of current situation at the border, because even in recent weeks, they've started implementing some policies where if you're from, and I apologize if I get some of the logistics of this wrong, things are changing really quickly yeah. and I'm trying to keep up with all, but they've started they created an agreement with Guatemala, which was saying Guatemala is a safe third country. So rather than seeking asylum in the U.S., there's deporting people to Guatemala, even if they're not Guatemala necessarily, to say you can apply for asylum in Guatemala. Oh, um, my goodness. Okay. Interesting. Which is, which is challenging because the, yeah. Guatemala struggles with violence and some different things as well, which is one reason why it's one of the top three countries where people are leaving Guatemala to come to the U.S. And right. Fight. That doesn't even, that doesn't make sense. I'm sure you could talk for an hour about that. Okay. <laughs> I did not know that. And that is mind boggling as well, but as are it, so many facets of this. Well, it's, you know, what it really is, is an effort to push the problem away, yes. to push people away and say, out of sight, out of mind. Yes. So if you come to our border, we have a legal requirement to address that, but we've started putting different 
you know, creating other orders and proclamations and laws and things to say, well, or we can do it this way, which gets back to kind of what we were saying earlier of these laws are created for a purpose. Mm -hmm. And in this case, they're being created so that asylum seekers can't find safety here. And so it, it is, it's really, it's, it's very, very difficult and I feel like yeah. as Americans, we're made to believe, if we're just listening to the rhetoric on the news, that these laws are made to keep us safe. Not, you know, I mean, that's, and they, there's almost this fear in us, like we have to have these things for the protection of our country and to make America great and all of this. Mm -hmm. And that's not the whole story. It's not even really the story. And so I think that's why, again, it's so you've just got to educate yourself on what is really going on. So one of the things I want to talk about is with going over all these, the, the legislation and the laws, why, why should Christians pay attention to these things? How would you answer that? Because I think so many Christians, maybe it's shifting some, but I think in the past it's been, well, it's legal or not. And then that whole tension between following God and following the law. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think that I've, I've been actually wrestling with this question a lot as we've been pushing the pushing people further away mm -hmm. because the opportunities to live out my belief that we are to love our neighbor and to welcome them and it feels like it's being pushed further away that there's mm -hmm. you know not that opportunity in fact when we were in El Paso this fall between the time we scheduled the trip and the time we arrived remain in Mexico had gone into effect and they said well we were going to do all of this stuff in El Paso, but now there's no migrants here. So we're going to have to take you into Mexico to talk with migrants and things. And it just, it's just that extra layer of like, it's becoming so much harder <laughs> to, mm -hmm. to demonstrate love and welcome and invite people into communities and family and security and health and, and joy together. And I believe that that is as much a heartbreaking situations for migrants as it is for us in the U S to be disconnected from those relationships. I don't think that it's hard for me to be able to look and say, oh, well, that's so unfortunate for them. I hope they find safety. My gut tells me this is unfortunate for us as the U.S. church, as community members and church members and students and all of these things that that there are people who should be in our classrooms and in our congregations and in our communities who won't be there because they have so much to offer us as well as what we as a country have to offer them. And so I think for U.S. Christians, there is a deep calling to recognize that, that God has created us as part of a body and many, many, many of our Latin American brothers and sisters, our neighbors to the South, are part of our faith family and how do we connect with them and demonstrate love and engage when so many barriers are being set in between us. And, and I think too, so much for me is recognizing that where are we allowing love to drive our opinions and decisions and where are we allowing fear to drive those things? And I believe deeply that relationships are an anecdote to fear and that this that the further we're driven apart from each other, the much more difficult it will be for us to, to grow outside of that fearful mindset and be able to actually live deeply into love and welcome and hospitality. Yeah, I agree. That's so good. And I think, you know, I've 
mention to you briefly, like just talking a little bit about this time of year with the, the Holy Family and Jesus's story in the Nativity. And we've seen that picture going around on social media of Jesus and Mary and Joseph in the holding cages. And what, let's talk just a little bit about that and how you see when that relating to the present day immigration and that story and what we can maybe even learn, learn more and dig a little bit deeper if we relate it to that story. You know, it's so interesting. I was, I was reflecting on the part of the nativity story where Joseph and Mary flee to Egypt and they are doing that with a toddler. So they, you know, they've few years have passed since his birth, (laughs) but they are still traveling with a very young child. And we hear a lot of rhetoric about why would families do this? You know, why would they bring their kids through this really difficult journey and place them in these vulnerable situations. And the reality is that, that their families are already in vulnerable situations and parents are doing whatever they can to protect their children. And that is something that we see in Moses's mother. That's something we see in Mary and Joseph. We see that people of God will protect their children in, in any of the ways that they can. But I was thinking because in our asylum process, you have to have documented proof your life is in danger for these Mm. categories. And I was thinking about a woman that I met in Oaxaca, Mexico, who was traveling. And she said, you know, the reason we left Honduras was because someone reached out to us on Facebook and said, your son's life is in danger. We're coming for him. You know, these kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And yet I also, as I listened to her story, you know, my heart just breaks for their individual situation and also knowing that I don't know if they'll if they are able to claim asylum in the US if they will have enough documentation to prove their case. And then I'm reminded that Joseph had a dream. Mm. <laughs> like God told Joseph in a dream, you've got to go, you've got to protect the Christ child. And really when I saw the picture of the nativity in the cages and and of course that pushes everybody to kind of write all of their talking points in capital letters. But I think what stood out to me most when I saw it was this realization that it's not that unusual that families are still doing what Mary and Joseph did. Violence and fear and terror are as old as time. That is not what is so unusual because a lot of people will say, well, Mary and Joseph didn't break any laws. And I think what stands out to me from that sort of striking visual image is what is unusual today is that we are creating laws that keep people from safety. And so I just really feel challenged with that. How do I engage? How do I continue to advocate both for welcome on an individual and personal level and creating relationships across cultural barriers, but also on kind of this broader scale of saying, we have the opportunity to influence our laws and how do we help create laws that that cultivate safety and strong and flourishing communities for everybody. And that looks a lot of different ways. But for me, that when I think about the nativity story, something else that really stands out to me that I'll mention is the doing the the idea of the innkeeper closing the door in the face of Mary and Joseph. And I think that is an image that is very striking when we're considering the immigration story. But I've been I've been reading the last couple of years about some of the cultural context of the nativity. And in the ways that our Western perspective really influences how we interpret that. And one of, one of the first things that really blew my mind was this idea that it's very, very unlikely that Mary and Joseph traveled by themselves 
to Bethlehem, it is much more likely that they were part of a caravan of family members who were all traveling for the census because they were all from there. <laughs> it, it completely reimagines this entire story for me, mm -hmm. right? Because now, now you don't just have this like obedient man and holy woman like on a donkey. You have like kids running around, women packing food, men, you know, getting wagons and donkeys ready, all this kind of, you know, there's this yes. energy, right? That's, that suddenly yeah. comes into that scene. And one of the things is I was reading from another writer who was talking about some of the cultural context of they would have arrived in Bethlehem at the home of family members, because this is the city where they were from. Yes. And that the word we translate to in can also be translated guest room, but this idea that, oh, your family comes, well, there's no room in the guest room, but we can make some room here for you among the animals. All of a sudden, it's a much more welcoming picture of this idea of we will make room for you wherever we can, because obviously you're about to have a baby and we're family. And I think it's really interesting the ways we've interpreted the nativity in a very different way that may be impacted by our Western perspective. And so I've been really just reflecting on that this season, this idea of maybe it wasn't people turning them away. Maybe it was family making room for them wherever they can. And I really just see so much of that in our culture today of people on the move, trying to get to family, trying to make it work. Yeah, that's such so powerful. And me and my daughter were actually talking about that perspective yesterday because we have this one narrow-minded view when we look at it through this lens of the 21st century America of that story, but it could be be very different. Such a lesson for us about how different things could be here if we learn a little bit more from that story of Jesus and welcoming hmm. the neighbor. One of the things that you say, you say, loving our neighbor, welcoming the stranger, showing hospitality draws us closer to the heart of the gospel. And I think that is just so profound, Sarah, and just a message that is just woven throughout your book and your message. And I'm just so, so appreciative for your voice with all of this. Mm, and I didn't let you finish up because I do want people to still read your book. So I don't want to give everything away. <laughs> But tell us how you obviously have two kids and you're married. And I don't think you'd share the story about Billy if it wasn't him you married. So, so you've been married. You've been Spoiler married. How many? Yes. But there's a lot of twists and turns to get there. And like I said, you inter intertwine a lot of this information. How long have you guys been married then, Sarah? We just celebrated 12 years last month. Yay. Congratulations. Yeah, and were you just living in Guatemala? Yes. Okay. So we, we lived in Guatemala almost half of this year because part of what has come up for us as we've continued to ask God, what does it look like to love our neighbor yeah. <laughs> has been, has involved us starting a business in Guatemala because why we believe in this both and of welcoming people here in the U.S. and also contributing to opportunity in home countries so that people can make a choice about whether or not they'd like to immigrate. Um, and so we st we moved there in February and have been launching that business. Um, we make construction products out of recycled materials, and it's been a wild roller coaster of a ride, yeah. but really, really exciting stuff um, to be a part of. So yeah, that's so cool. And I love I really do love that part of your story, too. Because when we say loving your neighbor, it's not just which it is, but it's not just like, okay, everybody wants to be an American and just come here and we'll love you. But it's also helping empower these women in other countries and children and finding jobs and work and helping them just like you're doing. And I think that's a big part that we're also missing that we need to focus on as well. 
and I just appreciate that part of your story and your narrative. You also list at the end of your book, because I know the age-old question you probably get is, well, what can we do? Okay, if we're Christians and we care, then what can we do? And you list some real practical things in your book. You have an acronym LEAD, which is um, do you just want to share that real quick in the few minutes that we have? And you don't have to get into every one of them, but just sure. what's the kind of some basic when people ask that question that you say? Yeah. So I use the acronym LEAD with L standing for loving acts, which is a lot of times what we think of, of having someone over for dinner, you know, as someone who was just in Guatemala with school-aged kids, I am so grateful for other mothers who were like, tomorrow's costume day. I'm like, <laughs> thank you. I don't I have no idea how you have that information, nor could I read it if it was sent home. All of those small ways that we pay attention to the people in our lives. Um, e is for empower, which is things like teaching English or hiring refugees or all those things that allow and equip people to be able to thrive and flourish here in the U.S., a is for advocacy, which involves, you know, calling our representatives, pushing for reform, all of those kinds of ways. It might mean running for office, all those different ways that we might advocate for our neighbors. And then D is where I include development, which is contributing to what's happening in home countries. Um, so because because it is such a um, a heartbreaking truth that there that many many people would prefer to stay in their home countries though they're grateful for the opportunity to be in the US there there is a desire to be at home and so how do we help create that right and Sarah tell us you have a newsletter you have a website there's so much more information that you have out there and if people are looking to get involved like with the advocacy and all of that I know you have a lot of information so tell us where you can be Absolutely. found Yes. Yeah, so my website is just my name, Sarah Casada, which is S-A-R-A-H-Q-U-E-Z-A-D-A.com. And I do a weekly um, Friday email where I kind of highlight what's happening in the worlds of faith, justice, and culture, particularly around immigration. Um, and I really seek to offer both stories of hope as well as helping folks digest and understand what's happening in the news. And so you can find that on my website, sarah.com slash roadmap. And my book is called Love Undocumented, which really just dives into our story more in depth, kind of what we've talked about here today. And I will also say that I'm involved in a project with the National Immigration Forum and World Relief is, is helping create online spaces for women, Christian women to have conversations about immigration. And so you can find that on Facebook. It's called Christlike Welcome. Oh, very good. Okay, I have heard of that, but we will link all of that up. So I appreciate you bringing that one up too, but we'll link up your website and your book and the Christlike Welcome so people can find out more information, okay? That's great, thank you so much. Sarah, I've just loved having you today. And again, I just thank you for your voice and your story and for teaching us how to love better. Oh, I really appreciate it. Sarah's story spoke to you as much as it did to me. I've said it before, but as the church and Jesus followers, this is an issue we can't turn a blind eye to. We also can't look to the nightly news and sound bites as our only information source for what's happening at the border. I encourage you to seek out other stories and resources to get an accurate account of what's really going on and how you can be involved. Sarah's book, Love Undocumented, is a great resource, and it's one of the top books I would recommend to anyone with a heart for this issue, or anyone who still questions why they should care about immigration reform. As always, it will be linked up in the show notes at HerStorySpeaks.com. There you'll also find other resources where you can learn more about this issue.